My name's Ben, one of the pastors here. Today we're going to be all over, uh, so it's a little disingenuous to tell you to go to 1 Peter 1, but we will get there eventually, uh, so do that. Go ahead and turn or tap your way to the book of 1 Peter, it's toward the, or, the end of the New Testament. Shorter book, but you can find it, especially at the little table of contents. If you don't have a paper Bible, use a digital one. If you don't have either, please don't panic. We're going to have those words on the screen. We'd love to gift you a Bible and a readable English translation uh, on your way out today. Because we would like to see you to see where we're getting what we're talking about. Um, so I don't know what study he was referencing, but there's an old joke by a guy named Jerry Seinfeld, who's a stand-up comedian, where he references, yeah, you can't assume anything. I feel like I've got to say that. Okay, there's a guy, his name is Jerry Seinfeld, he's a comedian. But he, he had an old joke uh, where he referenced a study that was done, reference, uh, uh, that was ranking people's fears. And he said, again, I don't have any footnotes here, so don't try to crucify Jerry Seinfeld. But he said in the joke that the number one fear that we have is public speaking. The number two fear is death. So in his joke, he's saying, if you go to a funeral, most people would rather be in the coffin than giving the eulogy. And you can hear it in his kind of cadence if you know who he is. Um, and that's funny. You know, I, I, I'm with him on that. I, I laugh at that joke. There's a reason I remember it. And yet, I, I don't know the stat that he's referencing. I, I can't say whether or not that's true. I have a hard time believing that if you pulled a gun on somebody and said, stand up and make an announcement, or I'm going to shoot you in the head, that people would go, just shoot me. I can't do it. I, don't, I can't talk publicly. Um, I, I don't think that that's really the case. It maybe, you know, gets a little backwards. And yet, I don't know of anyone, including myself, who would not get jittery, uh, who did not just two seconds ago get jittery, when the prospect of speaking in front of people uh, comes at you. Maybe you feel like you're good at it. Maybe it's something you've done a lot, but it's still something hard. Speaking to people and having them possibly judge you, whether it's lots or just a few, whether it's somebody you know or somebody you don't, comes up often. I don't know how often it has to happen, but it seems like it's a default setting for a lot of people. We can use things like people pleaser. We use terms like codependent. But the Bible talks about it as something called fear of man. And it uses that word fear in the same way that we talk about fear of the Lord. It's an awe given, uh, uh, an honor or an importance, a weightiness given to people. And the Bible does talk about it quite a bit. It says in Proverbs, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. There's an either or that's taking place there. Now, Today, I want to think about Peter. We've been doing this thing called Good Guides. It's our series where we're thinking about different people in Scripture and how the Lord interacts with them. And this guy, Peter, is an interesting case because he is somebody who throughout the last 2,000 years has been held very high by Christian communities. I mean, Catholicism still considers him to be the first pope and the reason that they have that papal structure. I think most Christians that have read through the New Testament would say that Peter was a big deal. He was a Jewish fisherman that Jesus called to be one of his disciples. And so he follows Jesus through his ministry as this itinerant preacher is moving throughout this part of the Middle East. Peter is walking along with him, listening to the things that Jesus says, doing things for Jesus in small capacities, but they're capacities that grow. Throughout the ministry that Jesus had, he sends out his disciples to go and preach about what he has been teaching. So they, they then become his mouthpiece in a small way, and then he sends out an even bigger group. And in both cases, Peter would have been one of those that go. 
Then, towards the end of his ministry, you see, as Jesus is including Peter, James, and John into this smaller group within the disciples regularly, when we get past Jesus' death and then resurrection and ascension, it is Peter that God uses to preach at Pentecost, which was the first big sermon, the first big moment when God is going to speak out after Jesus' ascension. And it's Peter who is the mouthpiece of the 11. It was the 12, but then Judas was the betrayer, and so it becomes 11. And then under Peter's leadership, they actually install a 12th again. And then as, as God does this amazing work with the Holy Spirit being poured out on his disciples, it's Peter that speaks. We get two books of the Bible by Peter. We think the Gospel of Mark was led by Peter's ministry to this guy, Mark, that he later called his son. He was a big deal in Scripture. And yet, if you actually read his life, there's some problems. In Jesus' ministry, Peter walks on water. There's a point where there's this storm. Jesus had stayed behind. He sends his disciples on ahead, Sea of Galilee. They're sailing across. And in this storm, they think they're going to die. They look out and they see somebody walking on the water. Now, you may say it's crazy to ever say that there's a ghost. But if you're in a storm on the water and you see someone walking... It's a thesis, you know, it's a possibility that that would be a ghost. And that's what they all say. It's a ghost, you know, and they're freaking out. And then, no, 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 no. It's either a Jesus-shaped ghost or it's Jesus. And then they call out and Jesus says, don't be afraid, it's me. And then Peter boldly says, if it's you, then let me come out to you, Lord. And so Jesus says, come on. So Peter gets out of the boat and literally walks on water to Jesus. The only person I know of aside from Jesus that's ever done that. But what I'm talking about with there being problems. So when he has eyes on Jesus, he's walking on water, but then he looks and he sees the storm. He remembers that people can't walk on water and he begins to sink. Now, in old cartoons, when uh, Roadrunner is chasing, um, no, when Wile E. Coyote is chasing Roadrunner, and Roadrunner goes, and Wile E. Coyote goes, and then the bridge is out, and he keeps running for a second, and then he realizes, and then he falls, Ooh, that's cartoon physics. That's not real physics. What happened here is Jesus, Peter's walking on water. He realizes that he can't walk on water, and then he doesn't have a Wile E. Coyote moment, but he then begins in his own strength to try and walk on water, and you can't do that. He looks away from Jesus and to himself and then sinks. So he cries out, as anybody would, and it says in verse uh, 31 of Matthew 14, Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of Peter, saying to him, Oh, you little faith, why did you doubt? So Jesus gives us an insight into what was happening there. Now, I don't know that any of us, I mean, it's outlawed, so we shouldn't judge him, but I don't know that any of us really think that we could judge him for that. I mean, it's hard enough to jump off a high dive or something, much less to try and walk on water. But as you continue in Jesus' ministry, there's other things that Peter does. In Matthew 16, Jesus is teaching about himself. He says something really hard, and the crowds all leave. And he turns around to the disciples and says, you're going to leave too? Who, who, who do the crowds say that I am? I think. And, and then Peter says, you're the son of God. He makes a bold proclamation about who Jesus is. Then you get down into the very next story. And in the very next story, Jesus starts teaching them about how he's going to be killed and after being killed, going to rise again and that this is going to bring about the salvation of the people. And Peter starts to argue with him and saying, that's not what's going to happen. Where two seconds later, Peter was the only one smart enough to say, you're the son of God. He's now arguing with Jesus and Jesus says to Peter, 
Jesus turns and says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. If you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Not only is this what we would consider, you know, sort of a screw up or a failure on Peter's part. Jesus goes even further. He's, he's talked about his faith, and now he's saying that Peter's faith is actually set on the things of man rather than on the things of God. We're getting more specific. We're drawing more closely to our theme for today. And then there's a bigger ouch moment. And what could be a bigger ouch moment than Jesus calling you Satan? Well, at the end of Jesus' life in ministry, he tells the disciples a little bit more about what's going to happen. And Peter says, I will never deny you. I'll never leave you. I'll never ever betray you. And yet, while Jesus is going through his arrest and then his trial, his sort of sham trial, but his trial, Peter denies Jesus three times. He denies Jesus when a servant girl comes up and says, you are one of the men following him. He says, no, I wasn't. Denies Jesus. Another servant girl says it again. No, no, no. You are one of the ones with him. No, I wasn't. I promise. He makes an oath. And then there's some bystanders coming around, and they say, this man was with Jesus and others. Surely your accent is giving you away. And again, he denies it with an oath and says, I do not know the man. It says in uh, Matthew 26, 74 and 75, he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed, which Jesus saved as a sign. You know, before the rooster crows, you're going to, second time, you're going to deny me three times. Immediately the rooster crows. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, this is not only a failure. It's a failure, to our point, that seems to be predicated on his fear of these people. And it's a pretty extreme moment, no question. But it's a fear that gets brought out. He's not even able to, to, to defend Christ, to stand by Christ, when a servant girl is the one who's coming at him. A guy named Ed Welch wrote a really great book on this topic called When People Are Big and God is Small. It's a really, really helpful book, not a super catchy title. But if you ever read it, in there he says that fear of man is always a part of a triad, meaning a, a group of three, that includes unbelief and disobedience. Man, that's what we see in his life. Now, you think, okay, well, if at the end of Jesus' life, Peter denies Jesus three times like this? Surely that's it for Peter. Like, that's got to be the end of his time. Like, he and Judas are now out of the 12, right? But no. And I think this is the heart of why this guy is such a great example for us. Jesus actually restores Peter. At the end of John, which is the gospel that we have forth, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, at the end of John, there's this story about how Jesus comes and he speaks to Peter and he talks to him about these denials, and so three times to Peter, just like three times Peter denied Jesus, three times Jesus to Peter says, Jesus, do you, or I'm sorry, Peter, do you love me? And Peter has to say, you know I love you, Lord. And then after each of the responses, then Jesus will say to him, feed my sheep or tend my sheep. He's not only saying, is our relationship right? He's also saying that Peter is restored to the work that he had called him to. And after this restoration, you think, okay, well, now Peter's definitely got it, right? Like, surely, 
He, he's gone through insane stuff. He's seen insane stuff, not only in the three years of Jesus' ministry, but since. He was used by God to be the preacher who brought about thousands and thousands of conversions on one day. You go a little bit further, it happens again. He's standing up boldly to the Sanhedrin. He's leading the people of God. And then God gives him a vision that confirms what he said throughout Scripture about how he is a, a God over all of mankind. That he's not just here for the Jewish people, he's also here for the Gentile people. And it's Peter that's given that initial kind of um, vision moment to kickstart the church into its ministry to the Gentile community. So he's being used in huge ways. You've got to think he's going to be great now. And yet, as we get further into the New Testament, in the book of Galatians we find that after Apostle Paul is preaching the gospel and you see all these churches starting to be planted and a lot of these churches start with Jewish community but then become big Gentile communities, that Peter goes to Galatia and when he's there, he, he stops eating with the Gentiles because he's scared of the Jewish Christians who would not approve of a Jewish person eating with Gentiles. He denies the gospel because he's scared of the opinions of some of these Jewish Christians after everything that took place in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. What do we do with that? <laughs> Why is fear of man so powerful? And why does it break down people who should be doing what they're called to do? I want you to think about it. What I understand fear of man to be. Take, take a second and think about it. Jesus gave us two big commands. And it doesn't, by those two commands, negate everything else. What he did was say, all the other commands that have ever been commanded fit within these two commands. And if you can remember them, think about them with me. The first one is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we know from Jesus' teaching that he didn't mean neighbor like next door. You don't even know their names. But the neighbor that he's talking about is all of people, humanity, whomever you might run into, regardless of their creed, color, nation, whatever. If you think about those two commands, there are really three parties involved. There's you, there's God, and there's everybody else. I want you to think about a seesaw. Now, I, I think seesaws have been outlawed. I don't see them on playgrounds anymore. <laughs> Too many kids have been like killed by seesaws, I guess. I grew up with seesaws. Hopefully you know that the thing exists and what it looks like. It's just a board, all right? It's a board on a triangle. And if you put a person on one side and a person on the other, they can kick off the ground and go up and down, unless one of them is super, super, super heavy. Because then it doesn't matter how hard they kick, immediately they come back down and the other person stays up high. If you're a dad and you do a seesaw with a kid, you know the experience. Now. What we're talking about with those three groups is which one wins on the seesaw. In your life, now we know what's true, but we're not talking about what's true. We're talking about how you think and believe. In your heart, which one of those three brings the seesaw down the hardest? For a proud person, the you party is the heavy party. When it comes to a contest between what you want and what God wants, God doesn't win. Boom, you do. For a proud person, it doesn't even matter really that much what other people think. Because between you and what other people think, boom, you win. 
for a, a godly person, and this is what we're all hoping to sort of learn and grow in, none of those other groups are anywhere near as heavy as God. And that's what we mean by fear of God. The fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom is not about, bah, boo, scare fear. It's about God being heavy, being awesome or awful in your life. So much so that whenever something else is put against God, boom, he wins. He's the heavier object. In Peter's life, though he understood a lot more about who the Lord is than we do, he often put other people as heavier than the Lord. When the option came to obey the Lord or obey people, mm. now he may have done a lot of things right, but he had some really public big misses here where the fear of man outweighed the fear of the Lord. Now, I, I want you to think about whether or not that might be part of your life. If you're a Christian, I think an easy way to kind of ask whether or not you've got a little fear of man in your heart is to ask you about evangelism. Now, this is the third time I'm going to ask. Have you guys written your two paragraphs? Yeah, you didn't, you little jerks. You know, I, I, I don't know if you did or not. I hope, I hope that you have. I haven't received a single request for editing. So, I mean, either you're great at it or you're talking to each other about it or you haven't done it, which call me a cynic. I'm going to guess is the third. Listen, I would like for you, we talked about this the last two weeks, to write out your story of your interaction with God in just two paragraphs, to just try and say, what's it like before knowing God, how did I come to know God and what's my life like now? That story is a really powerful thing for you to share with other people who know you or who are getting to know who you are. And that two paragraphs allows you to share something about what God does with people. You then become a good guide to others. Now, we call that evangelism, and that word has clunkiness to it because it's an old word. We've used it for a while, and it comes from the Greek. But when most Christians consider the idea of talking about God to other people, your heart starts to flutter. You get the butterflies, feel like metal butterflies maybe. It, it can be really intimidating. It's very similar to the Jerry Seinfeld moment about whether you'd be, rather be in the coffin or giving the eulogy. I would suggest to you that that is kind of an experience of fear of man. It's a moment where you decide that their opinions of you or their opinions of your thoughts and your belief system matter more than God's commands to you or your love for them. Now, I hope that we can see why we got to fight this. And, and actually, with Peter, I think that we can start to learn to fight it. Because towards the end of his life, despite his many failures, Peter did write the books of First and Second Peter. And in those books, he says things that have a lot to do with what we're talking about. In fact, in 1 Peter 3, 13 to 15, he says, Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, don't fear them don't even be troubled, but instead in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. He's telling them the opposite of the fear of man is the fear of the Lord. To grow in understanding the holiness of the Lord, which noticeably is who he calls Jesus Christ. We talked about that uh, last week. 
it's been a seven or eight weeks since I speak, spoke last because of what we did this week. It feels like it was a long time. Whatever we talked about Jesus last. When we talked about Jesus, we talked about how Jesus is God and how he claimed to be God. We'll notice that his writers, the people that followed him in their own ministries are also claiming Jesus to be God. The word holy is something that no Jew would use for anything or anyone in the same way they would mean it about God. And yet he calls Jesus both the Lord and holy. He says that Jesus being God must be honored in your heart. And to the extent you honor him in your heart or to the extent that he grows in his majesty in your heart, his weight will grow. His weight will start to grow to the point that it doesn't really matter how much you consider other people important. They will still start to rise and he will start to grow so much so that he begins to win in the seesaw battle of which one you really fear. Now, that sounds really great. For Peter, it became a really big deal. He started to have a gospel identity, not a performance identity, and not an identity based on his ethnicity. He wasn't a Jewish identity or a good Jewish identity. He was a Christian identity, a received identity. We talk about that a lot. I think we're going to keep talking about it. He talked about it because he understood that who God was and how God loved him, the holiness of who God is and the way that God treats his people is so much better than any other option that God became big and people started to become smaller. He helps us to see the love of God for a sinner when he says that you become a chosen race, a royal priesthood. When he speaks to God's people, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Man, think about that. Peter was a terrible follower. He was almost a bad, as bad of a follower as you and I are. I would say he's probably a great deal better. But in the scriptures, he was seen as a pretty terrible follower. And yet, God's love sees him and calls him to something um, phenomenal, incredible, incredibly useful, but also incredibly majestic. But it's not because of Peter. It's because of how good God is. That's what he says. He says that you and I are in darkness, but it is God who calls us into his marvelous light. And it's not because we're fantastic. It's because he's fantastic. You got to learn to let go of this, this value judgment that you constantly do between you and other people or other people and other people. And then all people versus God is to say that they must be better because of something. And it has to be something that I can do on my own so that I have some shelter, some ability to have pride still. Peter's saying no, that God just loves you because of how good God is, that you are in darkness, but he can call you into marvelous light. He's not calling you into marvelous light because you're a royal priesthood or because you're already holy or because you're already his people. He's calling you out of darkness and into his light and making you a chosen race, making you a royal priesthood, making you a holy nation and his own people in order to see his excellencies. He loves you just because you're a self that he's made. And he's so good that no matter your background, no matter what you've done or what people have done to you, no matter what you've done 
or what people have done to you. He loves you. He's calling you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And you can always tell uh, when I didn't have a lot of time to prep because I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis so much. But here's what he says. Perhaps it makes it easier if we remember that that's how he loves. Not for any nice, attractive qualities we think we have, but just because we're the things called selves. For really, there's nothing else in us to love. Creatures like us who actually find hatred such a pleasure that to give it up is like giving up beer or tobacco. Now, that was 1940s London. So maybe we can substitute beer and tobacco for like carbs and social media or, you know, whatever for you, you would put into that place where you've actually tried to stop at some point and it's like, nope, we're just going to be chubby because I can't give that up, you know. <laughs> He's saying that it would be harder for us to give up some of those sinful heart patterns and thought patterns, some of those sinful judgmental patterns we have towards other people than to give up our most compelling physical addictions. And yet, broken like that, God loves us so much that he sends Christ for us. So how do you feel this? How do you understand this? Peter began to so much that he not only wrote First and Second Peter, but according to church tradition, when he was killed under the persecution of Nero in the 60s, A.D. 60s, he requested, instead of being crucified, which the Lord commanded or, or prophesied at the end of John that Jesus, or that, I'm sorry, that Peter would be killed for the faith. But Peter, in a, a last sort of fit of his bold sort of moxie, as he's being led to be crucified, requests to be crucified upside down, head down, feet up. Still deadly. It wasn't some sort of trick to get out of crucifixion. But he wanted to do that because he didn't consider himself worthy to be crucified in the same way as his Lord. <laughs> what a triumph. What an incredible triumph. How, though? What changes? Peter begins to have his eyes on the Lord. He starts to see that God's big and sees people as smaller. He starts to understand those things. Okay, I get that. But what's the process? How do you actually go about daily getting to a place where things that are not God become smaller and things that are God become bigger? Well, Peter tells us, and this is where we're finally getting to Peter. 1 Peter 1. So if you've tapped there or held your Bible open to there, great. Here we are. 1 Peter 1, starting in verse 22, and it says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again. Now, there's a point in all this verse 22 where you might think to yourself, see, we are supposed to be obedient. See, we are supposed to have a pure heart. See, we are commanded to love and love in a sincere way. But he says that those actions are taking place since or because you have been born again. And we know that born again comes from John 3 and it comes from Jesus' own teaching, the idea that you don't have a good birth. Anything that's happened since your birth is actually so not good, but in fact, bad, that we got to go back to birth with you. We got to start over with you, not as a thing that has done things, but as just a self, as just this blank canvas that God starting you over is now going to write, starting you over through what Christ has done is now going to make into something new, into something beautiful. And how? 
He says, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. And there's so much there, the double meaning, the triple meaning, talking about the word of God and the way in which we're born through it. Jesus, the command of the gospel. But, but verse 24, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. How does God become big and people become small? The word. It's, it's reading, it's studying, it's seeing, it's loving the word. Of course the Bible. But in John 1, we understand that the word is the word made flesh. Is, is Jesus the best way to know him, of course, is to read about him in the word that was given to us, which is the Bible. How, how are you going to grow where God becomes big and everything else becomes smaller? We talked last week briefly about the transfiguration. It's a point where Jesus in his ministry reveals himself as not just a man, but also a man and God. And, and there's something of his godness that becomes in some way visible to Peter, James and John. And of course, they just freak out and they have incredible fear. And then at the end of that, Jesus becomes again what he always was, but he appears again, maybe, just in that man form. And just rise up, fear not. Jesus is always both. What's interesting about the transfiguration is they see a little bit more of what he is, but he's never more than or less than both of those things at all points in his ministry and existence. He's always God. He becomes man, but when they meet him as man, he doesn't give up his godness. He's always been God. When you read the word, what you do is have that same moment where a man becomes something incredible. Where God becomes something that is involved in everything that's taking place around you all the time. Where the sinfulness of sin becomes black and darkness. Not just something that's kind of a shame and you wish you could see as different, but something that God hates and will damn the people who engage in it over God forever. The word gives you eyes to see what is really happening. You become a blind person who meets Jesus and receives their sight. What do you do with that? Well, yeah, I mean, read your Bibles. <laughs> Learn to read your Bibles. Come back here to Hope Church. My, my job is to try and teach you to read your Bibles. Let that word sink in. But do it as part of your relationship with the one who is that word. It all comes back to that same question we ask again and again. Do you really know this Lord? See, Jesus' life and ministry was one of perfection coming to be substituted for imperfection. He dies the death that we deserve so that we can receive the obedience, the inheritance, the reward that he gets. How do you do that? How do you be born again? Well, you know, the Spirit goes where it wills. You don't really have a lot of emphasis in the whole birth process. You're more of a passive party. But how, how biblically do you go about it? What? You just do faith. You just hold your hands out and you say, Lord, I can't. Will you? I, I don't want like I should want, but a little bit of me really does want to be yours. Will you, will you forgive me? And, and can I do what Jesus commanded and, and repent and believe in the kingdom of God? And he's so good that I can tell you without knowing your story that he'll say yes. 
Why? Because he just loves. He loves you. He loves you as a self. He doesn't love you as a, as a mom or love you as an incredible professional or love you as a righteous person. You're not. He loves you because he loves. That's what Jesus proved with his life, his death and his resurrection. So this morning, we're, we're about to transition. We're going to go from the time of talking about the word to kind of seeing it. Uh, because that's what the Lord's Supper is. The Lord's Supper is a way for us to see that word. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're engaging in a practice that Jesus instituted himself, but he also makes it kind of clear what he's doing. He helps us understand the symbolism, but he also helps us understand who this is for. So I just want to briefly explain a little bit of that. When we take the Lord's Supper, we're taking from the body and blood of Christ... This bread is his flesh. That, that grape juice, wine, is his blood. The bread that becomes to you the bread of life. The blood that is what God uses to, to wash away your sin. Now we're going to have a baptism service soon. And baptism is the sign that you have engaged with that covenant. That you have received that gospel. The Lord's Supper is the, the sign that you're continuing in that covenant. So this morning, we want to invite you, if you are somebody who has put all of your faith and all of your trust in Jesus alone for your salvation, to come and take them the Lord's Supper. If that's not you yet, we're so glad you're here. But wait, please be respectful of the supper that Jesus started to do it his way. And wait. And let's talk about that baptism thing. Let's think together about whether or not you're ready for that first step in knowing who the Lord is. Now, what we're going to do, I'm going to pray. When I say amen, the band's going to start to play. And I want you to take a moment to just prepare your heart to take the Lord's Supper. Do business with God that you haven't done but need to. And then when you're ready, come up and get uh, one of the crackers and one of the little cups and wait. And we'll take those elements together. Lord and Heavenly Father, I do pray this morning that you would give us the grace to understand something of what, uh, what this next part of our service looks like and means. God, we're not, uh, we're not able to understand fully what all you're doing or have done. And yet, through your word, you are giving us incredible looks at what it is to be called out of darkness and into your marvelous light through what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Lord, will you please give us the grace to see you and see what you've done and the magnitude of both who you are and what you do and what you have done for us so that you become big and people around us become small. So they'll become the kind of people who care enough about you and enough about the people in this world to speak. And to speak in such a way that your name gets glory and other people for their good as well. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.